Good day, mate. 40 here. It is March 21, 2023. It is 4.47 p.m. in Los Angeles. And we are going out live over Rumble. We are live over YouTube. We are live over Odyssey. We are live over Facebook. We are live over Twitter. Hey, you with me tonight, Keith? London, come in. Sydney. All right, we're taking the gospel of vouch nationalism to the entire world. But first, I need to open up with a confession. This whole Trump indictment story, it's, it's personal to me. Because there was a time and there was a place, admittedly in a land far, far away, where I sacrificed my honor. Right? I demeaned and degraded myself. I did not abide by, what the hell, every jot and tittle of Torah law. I mean, I abided at all times by the spirit of Torah law, but there were times that I soiled myself, that I degraded myself, that I really did not live up to you know, the highest moral standards. And in the course of digging down deep to get to the bottom, to stay on top, right, I, I betrayed the highest moral standards that you expect from me. And I mean, this is a crazy town, L.A., and it can drag you down till you run out of dreams. So I was partying all night to the music and lights, but I didn't know what happiness means. I was dancing in the dark with strangers, and there was no love around me. And sometimes it's cold in this city, and it's wet, and you're just looking for comfort, and, and I found comfort. And, I mean, this woman, I, suddenly she found me, and she was like every woman in the world to me. I mean, she was my fantasy. She was my reality. I mean, everything good, everything fine. That's what she was. I mean, she put her hand in mine, and together we'd climb as the highest, the highest star. I mean, we would live a lifetime in every minute that we were together. But uh, it, it didn't work out. And, you know, I've become a very respectable man. And, and now, well... This happened a few years ago. She wanted to she wanted to ruin me. She wanted to degrade my my sterling reputation. And I didn't want that to damage you. I didn't want you to feel hurt by it because I know you, you expect such high lofty moral standards and this ex porn star coming out of the woodwork and revealing, you know, I was times when I was just very vulnerable. I am a man and I have weaknesses. And, and I have needs, and I'm I'm frail, and I haven't always lived up to the to the highest moral standards. But I wanted to protect you from the pain of of you know getting this download from this this tawdry ex porn star. So I know I've been telling you that I've been using your super chat money to buy Torah books. Well, actually, it was going to to pay off this this porn star. Just because, not for my own self, I don't care about my reputation. I was just thinking of you. I just knew how painful it would be for you if you heard about the things that she was going to reveal about me. And so to save you from pain, yeah, I I, I bought her silence. Uh, I'm not proud of this, all right? But I just wanted to save you from pain, just like that good man, Donald Trump, all right? He just wanted to save his family, his friends, his community, his his 
followers, the people who believed in him. He just wanted to save them from a tawdry spectacle. And so he he was willing to, you know, pay off uh, Stormy Daniels, you know, ensure her, her silence just to save you from pain. And I can identify th- with that because you know, I, I've done similar things. And until you've been there, right, until you've, you've been surrounded by that kind of temptation and then you've succumbed to it, right, and then you've, you've worked hard to, to raise yourself above the muck, to attain a position of tremendous respectability and to create this holy community where people are getting sober in this community, right? People are learning to keep Shabbos in this community. People are starting to put on tefillin in this community. People are davening three times a day. They're keeping the laws of Taharas Mishpacha, the laws of family purity. They're, they're keeping kosher, right? People are turning their lives around in, in this community and then to have this ex-porn star come along and, and you know, reveal things about me when I was just incredibly vulnerable, looking for love in all the wrong places. I just I just don't want to see you hurt. All right. It's not about me. All right. It's about you and what we're building here. The thing that I think is a good development that's happening recently Amy is Wax. this movement of women who are considering themselves neo-traditionalist, or even, as I've heard one woman, Louise Perry, say, neo-prudes. So women who say that men and women actually have very different attitudes towards casual sex. The risks of casual sex are extremely asymmetrical for men and women, and not necessarily endorsing shame and terror, but saying that saying that casual sex is an unalloyed good is a mistake. And it's not just a mistake because of unintended pregnancies. It's a mistake because it often makes women feel bad, because right. it's not women's best you know best reproductive strategy best romantic strategy best life strategy to have tons of casual sex because it will often not make them feel happy it makes men feel happy and you know i've even heard of this idea that casual sex is you know resurgence or the the incidence of hookup culture is actually a form of patriarchy because it's something that men want and that women uh, think they want but they've actually been fooled in some way what would you say to those kinds of conjectures i i mean i am totally on board with that i think one of the pernicious effects of you know feminist ideology and of you know gender sameness uh you know, well feminism is sort of this hot mess of of different uh different propositions and, and contradictions, of course, but one is uh, there's one sexuality and that sexuality is male. I mean, that is the proposition behind the hookup culture, behind uh, these online dating sites, like, um, I don't even know the names of them, um, uh, the one where you swipe left and right, whatever. Uh, yes, yeah. Uh, that that notion, which strikes me as just utterly preposterous. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't, you know, women who are, we used to call them nymphomaniacs. I mean, that there aren't women, <laughs> that's a nice 1950s term, oh, who love to, you know, have sex with a lot of different men. I, I think those women do exist. Do I think that they are the predominant, you know, type? No, no, I do not think that at all. I think women are cautious. You know, well, you're an evolutionary biologist. You know, women are more cautious, more picky. They're that way for a reason. These are, you know, on average, on average. Uh, they enjoy sex in the context of emotional connection. They don't necessarily enjoy it without that emotional connection, whereas men uh, are very different in that respect. I mean, I have male friends uh, who, you know, have told me, and one in particular who I like a lot, who says, I would just screw anything. It really wouldn't matter. Yeah. I, you know, anything like uh, three and above on one to 10. And I just looked at him like, okay. Uh, I, I certainly never felt that way. Um, um, at my college, who used to always say, it doesn't matter when you're in the middle. It doesn't matter how attractive she is when you're in the middle. Well, right. Very crass way of saying it. Okay, so you have two daughters. I have a daughter. I'm curious. Did, how did you educate your daughters? Or what did you tell them about sex and marriage? And, you know, how did you obviously, your grandma and your daughters. 
Okay, this is evolutionary psychologist Diana Fleischman talking with Amy Wax, a medical doctor, a law professor, and Diana Fleischman is married to another evolutionary psychologist, Jeffrey Miller. I don't know if they're uh, married or, or divorced or whatever, but did you think that you had some influence on them, or do you think that they just inherited this caution and prudence from you? My older daughter is married. My son's about to get married, and I know my younger daughter would love to get married. She, she's very much uh, trying to find someone to marry. Um, I was... Uh, very amy amy have you mentioned have you mentioned the 40 show just saying i didn't talk about it very much but i was very very candid about my views i didn't hold back you know this progressive parenting fashion of well don't you know don't tell them what you think and don't tell them what you think is good or bad don't approve or disapprove because that will alienate them i did never subscribe to that my view was you know i am going to give them the benefit of my my wisdom and experience and my opinion it's their life. If they want to screw it up, that's their prerogative. They don't have to do what I suggest, uh, but I'm not going to pull back. So I said, you know, marriage is really, really important. Having children is really important. My husband, who's a man of few words, once said, few are the women who could reach the end of their life childless without regret. Mm-hmm. That was his sole sentence about it. And it really just says it all, I think. Um, so these are really central and important things to a happy life. Um, male and female sexuality are different. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Uh, don't get pregnant. God, do not have a child out of wedlock. I mean, my older daughter was telling my younger daughter this. She said, I just want to tell you one thing. Don't get pregnant. Uh, <laughs> so I was hearing my words come back to me. Um, and my son is very traditional and he he kind of knows what time it is and he gets it. Uh, so, yeah, this is kind of nice getting to know the maternal feminine girly side of, of Amy Wax. I'm totally, totally digging that. But uh, let's get to the New York Review of Books, March 9, 2023 issue. All right, guys, I figured it out. Here's the secret to life. You have to learn to forget. All right, this is the dream of forgetfulness. Two recent books build on an inside of Borges that to live, it is necessary to forget. So these two books are Forgetting the Benefits of Not Remembering by Scott Small and a Primer for Forgetting, Getting Past the Past by Lewis Hyde. All right. That's what it's all about. We we forget and we forgive on this show. So when Jorge Luis Borges was asked if he'd forgiven the Peronis of Argentina, he replied, forgetting is the only form of forgiveness. It is the only vengeance and the only punishment too. So forgiveness and vengeance are siblings because both make use of oblivion as does art. You should go in for a blending of the two elements, memory and oblivion, and we call that imagination. Soren Kierkegaard agreed. One who has perfected himself in the twin arts of remembering and forgetting is in a position to play with the whole of existence. So I converted to a people who has very strong memories about the past and is constantly reliving the past when I converted to Judaism at the same time, there are tremendous downsides to doing that. There is a lot of benefit from forgetting. So if you immerse yourself in remembering the past, there are downsides and upsides. If you immerse yourself in forgetting, there are downsides and upsides. So I, here's this wonderful, wonderful image. All right. So from the book Forgetting by neurologist Scott Small, it says the loss of memory, it is like a chisel that hammers away at the marble of our lives, sculpting order and beauty from the block of raw experience. Isn't that great? The loss of memory is a chisel that hammers away at the marble of our lives, sculpting order and beauty from the block of raw experience. 
Yeah, I, I, I reading this essay just made me remember all the, the beautiful things about forgetting because I don't know about you, but uh, I really tend to beat myself down. Like uh, for years, you stupid effer, you stupid mother effer, you are so effed, right? The, these are the primary ways that I talk to myself about. And every time I just make a colossal, you know, blunder, you know, something that I was just so ashamed of. Uh, uh, when I sold LukeFord.com, all right. I, I made a deal so that the domain name would return to me in five years. Well, let's just say it didn't return to me as the deal was constructed and signed off on. And I was not entirely blameless in how I conducted things. And so, you know, I've lost LukeFord.com, my name, to, you know, pornographers. And that's not my dream for my name, all right? And I bear responsibility for that. I was screwed over, stolen from, uh, abused, taken advantage of too. But I played a very significant role in that. And I would just like berate myself and beat myself down for that for years. So when I make these, you know, epic, you know, screw ups, all right, it takes me sometimes a long time to let go and, uh, just just move on like otherwise i'm just like oh i just want to flinch and and uh, uh, like, oh dog gonna die good evening and welcome to tucker carlson son happy tuesday another day of rumors and thinly sourced news stories Ooh, what's new these about when and where donald trump will be arrested fingerprinted and photographed against a cinder block wall for his mugshot how much of this is true? Once again, we cannot say. Here's what we know. A Soros-funded prosecutor in New York, a man who ran on the promise to indict Trump, seems to be working hard to indict Trump, indicting him for a crime that no one even pretends is a crime, including the federal agency that has already investigated it and declared it not a crime. So in Manhattan tomorrow, what will certainly be an overwhelmingly liberal grand jury will meet and unless something unexpected happens, Democrats will have taken the unprecedented step of using a corrupt justice system to take out the front runner in the Republican presidential field in a presidential race. And if that happens, America will never be the same. You've got to hope that for the sake of the country, the Biden White House, which will be running against Trump, will put the country above partisanship and stop this. That Merrick Garland at DOJ will issue a very public statement saying that this is wrong, which it is and therefore preserve for our grandchildren our justice system. As of tonight, that doesn't seem to be happening. In fact, as of tonight, it's not just Trump who is the target of this. It's Trump's voters. The Biden administration is in the process of preparing, preparing yet another law enforcement dragnet of more than 1,000 nonviolent January 6th protesters. These are not people who broke windows or tussled with cops. These are patriotic Americans who questioned, who dared to question the official story of the 2020 election. They watched with the rest of us as COVID was used as a pretext to eliminate longstanding barriers to voter fraud. They saw Democratic partisan Mark Zuckerberg spend nearly half a billion dollars to influence the mechanics of voting, including in critical swing states. Nevertheless, as they watched the news on the night of November 3rd, Trump seemed to be winning re-election. And then they woke up and smug TV anchors are telling them that actually a senile man who refused to campaign had won the biggest landslide in American history. He got 15 million more votes than Barack Obama. <laughs> they were skeptical. They did not buy that. So they went to Washington to protest. They thought that was their right. And as a result, 
January 6th. That was more than two years ago. What did these people look like? Well, one of them was Jacob Chansley. We played you a video of him several weeks ago. They told you he was a terrorist. Here's what he was actually doing inside the Capitol. Here's video of Chansley in the Senate chamber. Capitol police officers take him to multiple entrances and even try to open locked doors for him. We counted at least nine officers who were within touching distance of unarmed Jacob Chansley. Not one of them even tried to slow him down. Chansley understood that Capitol Police were his allies. Video shows him giving thanks for them in a prayer on the floor of the Senate. Watch. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for paying the inspiration needed to these police officers to allow us in this building. So that's what Jacob Chansley actually did. There were people on January 6th who committed violence. They have been arrested. Jacob Chansley did not commit violence. By the way, he was arrested. He's spending four years in prison. A thousand people have already been arrested for that. And most of them did what Jacob Chansley did. They walked. Okay, I can, I can really uh, skip, skip that line. Okay, so much goodness to talk about, but uh, here's some speculation on Peter Thiel and his role in the... Narratives have been created by different political factions to explain the events. From simple corporate greed and incompetence to bizarre but typical cultural war agitation claiming that the banks woke signaling causes. In this video, we will not follow these trite talking points, but will instead posit a different interpretation of the events. One based on the actors involved, the timing of their actions, and the greater geopolitical situation that was the backdrop to the event. On March 11th, Evan Armstrong posted on Twitter that a key spark for the bank run was analysis posted on the 23rd of February by a financial analyst called Byrne Hobart. The claim being that Byrne noticed a weakness with the SVB books and that with SVB missing earnings, VCs, who had read his newsletter, began to withdraw funds and concerned that the bank was insolvent. This narrative is quite compelling and would seem to make some sense, but is there maybe something else going on here? Let's look at the geopolitical situation. At the same time as the SVB run occurring, there was, and still is, mass unrest in Israel aimed at the Netanyahu government, which is attempting to implement changes to its legal system, which would place far greater power in the hands of the Likud party. This has caused a major rift between the US and this Likud faction. At the same time, the close relationship between the Likud faction and China also appears to be suffering from serious setbacks, as evidenced by the recent rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Iran, a rapprochement which was brokered by China. While this was happening, various tech companies in Israel announced that they were decamping from the Israeli banking system and moving to SVB in protest at the Netanyahu government. Considering that a large part of Netanyahu's strategy has been to try and make Israel and the US entwined technologically and militarily, this was a problem. In light of this context, it would make sense to look a little more closely at the actors that sparked the bank run. Recall that a newsletter that was supposed to have led to the bank run was written by Bern Hobart. Now, Hobart is a contributor to the Palladium magazine, which is funded by Peter Thiel. And as such, he is not just some random financial analyst. He's very much integrated into the Thiel circle, which raises some questions. Did he really stand out as the first analyst to notice this issue, or was he playing the role of providing an excuse for a hostile action? Then we get into the figure of Peter Thiel himself. Thiel is very aligned with the Netanyahu faction and funds various endeavors of theirs, from national conservatism run by Yoram Hazoni to supporting obvious liquidite online assets like Kostin Almario, and he plays a large role in the Federalist society along with Leonard Leo. Then we have to issue a Founders Fund, which has Kiefer Boys as a general manager, and his closeness to the Netanyahu faction is very, very clear. Of course, it wasn't just Thiel and the Founders Fund that sparked the bank run. Union Square Ventures and Kotu Management were also part of the initial move. 
when it comes to KOTU and USV, there are definitely indications that these funds operate in the same vein as Founders Fund, and that they are strong links to Israel, as evidenced by their positions in Israel, or in companies which appear to have strategic significance to Israeli intelligence. So this raises the question, was this a means to strike back at the companies removing themselves from Israel, or was this something else? Take into consideration that these VCs are not naive investors, and that SVB has been a very odd bank for a long time. The idea that suddenly now, these VCs, who all happen to have connections to Israel, all decided that SVB was a financial risk is incredibly odd, which has led many people who have looked at this from a merely financial point of view to become very, very confused. Then we have the added confusion created by Teal's recent claims that he had $50 million of his own money left in SVB. Why would Teal tell companies under his fund to withdraw money from a bank and not withdraw his own? And why would he claim this in the Financial Times of all places? And why would members of the Founders Fund claim that Peter Teal had no part in the decision to remove funds from Silicon Valley Bank? There are many more questions that remain open. So okay, so much to talk about, but uh, Laponia sent a tweet. Tucker Carlson produced a lawsuit alleges that Tucker Carlson staff regularly joked about Jews. Oh no, not joking about Jews. Held mock debate on whether Governor Whitmer or challenger Tudor Dixon was more effable. Oh, that's just the worst. I mean, I'd definitely say Tudor Dixon. Workspace had a picture of Nancy Pelosi in a bathing suit. Oh my God. That's terrible. How how disrespectful is that? My God, just Tucker Carlson team put pictures of Nancy Pelosi in a in a bathing suit. Wow. That's 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 heinous. And they, they made jokes about Jews. And they joked about whether Gretchen Whitmer or Tudor Dixon was more affable. My God. These people, they're animals. They're animals, I tell you. Absolute animals. Oh. Can you believe it? She was stunned upon starting her job to be greeted by many large and blown up photographs of Nancy Pelosi in a plunging bathing suit revealing her cleavage. Apparently, the joke was that Speaker Pelosi looked terrible in a bathing suit. I think she looks amazing. I mean, she looks great. She's like 80 years old, but she can still bring it. Oh, wow. There's a pervasive attitude of misogyny, abuse, and toxicity of the company. And, oh, no, one producer at Fox News said a room set aside for employees to pump breast milk was a waste of space. Wow. How will Fox News ever recover? Uh, back to the tweet storm. I have a hard time taking anyone seriously who pushes nonsense about Carlson being a populist or a truth teller on cable news. He's a twice-failed cable news host. Yes, so if you failed at anything, guys, you can't be a populist nor a truth teller so tucker carlson a decade later realized the fake character he had to be on tv to win over maga wow very very disturbing okay tucker is still going on and on about the january 6 riots that they were mostly peaceful i don't think i need to hear his commentary on that but what i want to share with you is the importance of forgetting. 
Okay, so dementia is often indistinguishable from normal aging. The older brain naturally begins to show signs of cognitive impairment. Memory is never like a steel trap. It is flexible, form-shifting, and fragmented, even for those with excellent recall. So forgetting is just as active a process as remembering. It's got its own molecular signature. It is a cognitive gift. Yes, I am glad to forget or at least have, have the memories not so intense with me about the stupid, embarrassing, ridiculous, disgusting, vicious, nasty, brutish, and short things that I've done. So forgetting works in concert with memory to make meaning out of the chaos of the sense impressions we bombard our brains with every day. Forgetting helps us with behavioral flexibility, helps us to find novel solutions to unexpected situations, and even machine learning networks perform better when they allow to forget. I like that. So PTSD is in many ways a disorder of excessive memory. Right? All the experiences we'd rather forget return to haunt us in flashbacks freighted with emotion. I mean, I've done some embarrassing things. I've done some unethical things. I've done some cruel things. I've done some overbearing things. I've done some histrionic things. I've done some pathetic, miserable, cowardly, disgusting, gross things. And uh, I, yeah, I generally rather forget. Okay. One thing Tucker does really well is play clips from the news. So let's do that. In New York City, watch this. We've got something called video. And it shows still that it was a riot. It was an attempted insurrection. And they keep going to jail. And so for those who think they're going to screw with the NYPD today... Stay on the other side of the bridge. It's not going to go well. Even if they come into New York City and break the law, they're going to jail. It's pretty simple. Break the law, go to jail. There is no post-truth world going to when Rikers. it comes to the court system, right? Pretrial yeah. detention. No, certainly so. Yeah, the, Rikers. Uh, yeah. And by the way, one-way ticket too. Somebody said it. Rikers. Have a good day. Over the long bridge there to Rikers Island. Yeah, there is certainly the NYPD specializes, particularly post 9-11, in real shows of force. Some of us will never tire of hearing Joe Scarborough demand that we lock up people who break the law. The filthier you are, the more hypocritical you are, of course. But what's so interesting is how you never see these very same people fantasize about locking up, say, the murderers or rapists or armed robbers or people who push elderly women in front of subway cars who are making New York City unlivable. This is a city in which the homicide rate jumped more than 50 percent from 2019 to 2021 because of their policies. They don't care about that. They're not mad at the murderers who caused shootings to increase more than 100 percent in that same period. They're not mad that Alvin Bragg, their new favorite prosecutor, dropped 70 percent of criminal cases, actual criminal cases, since taking office so that these same criminals can continue to terrorize poor people in neighborhoods where MSNBC anchors don't live. Try that in Nantucket and see if it works. Don't think they'd put up with it. So they don't want those criminals locked up. They want protesters who vote the wrong way to get locked up. Now, it goes without saying this is an inversion of what you're supposed to want in a sane society. In a sane society, you let elections determine who has political power. You don't fantasize about your political opponents going to jail. 
You don't want a real show of force to deter constitutionally protected protests because those protests are the sign of a free society. You're proud of that. The people can protest. They don't have to be violent. They can say what they think. But that has changed over the last two years under the Biden administration. Here's federal prosecutor Michael Sherwin on 60 Minutes in 2021 in tape that we will never forget. Speaking about American citizens bragging about the DOJ using, quote, shock and awe to round up as many Trump supporters as possible to deter them from protesting Joe Biden's inauguration, which they have the constitutional right to do. Watch this. After the 6th, we had an inauguration on the 20th. So I wanted to ensure, and our office wanted to ensure that there was shock and awe that we could charge as many people as possible before the 20th. And it worked because we saw through media posts that people were afraid to come back to D.C. because they were like, if we go there, we're going to get charged. We wanted to take out those individuals that essentially were thumbing their noses at the, the public for what they did. Shock and awe? Take out those individuals? Isn't that how you treat ISIS? These are Americans you're talking about, pal. That man in a free country would have no power whatsoever over his fellow citizens. And instead, he's launching a new war on terror against people who vote differently from him. This is bigger than Donald Trump, and it has been for a long time, and now it's escalating. So where are the Republicans, you wonder, the people you vote for, who are supposed to be protecting you from this, but the country from devolving into something unrecognizable? Where's Mitch McConnell, by the way? He's the lead Republican in the Senate. Where's Tom Tillis? the liberal Republican from North Carolina. Where's John Cornyn of Texas? Where are all the other Republican senators who said, shut up, you shouldn't see the videotape from January 6th? Are these people on board with arresting a thousand? Okay, some, some good points there by Tucker. I am all for arresting people who are bent on committing criminal acts and disturbing the peace. I would like to see that done against Trump supporters who are bent on breaking the law and putting people's lives, innocent people's lives at risk. I would like to see that same enthusiasm uh, directed towards Black Lives Matter. So it, it is interesting to see how enthused the Democrats are at locking up Trump supporters, but they don't want to lock up their own voters. All right. They want uh, blacks who are arrested for, say, carrying a handgun. They want them to you know, just be let out with no cash bail. But if a Trump supporter right, does, does anything wrong, they're just salivating at the prospect of locking him up. I want to lock up everyone who is a threat to the, the, the public space, who's a, a threat to safety and, and peace, not, not just uh, Democrats, not just uh, Republicans. Let's see if this interview is any good. Thanks for having me, Tucker. Well, my January 6th story started on January 6th. I was one of those independent. No, I don't care about your January 6th story. You may say Trump's a schemer, but he's not the only one. He hopes someday you'll join him. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Let's, uh, let's get back to the New York Review of Books. All right. PTSD is in many ways a disorder of excessive memory, right? I feel a lot happier, a lot calmer. I feel like I have a lot more agency. I feel a lot more in control of my life. I feel better about myself when I am you know, not haunted 
by memories of the the most embarrassing, deluded, ridiculous, cruel, nasty, brutish things that I have done. So why are there some military groups that are spared PTSD? Well, apparently, one of the greatest risk factors for the development of PTSD is finding oneself isolated after a trauma, unable to process the experience and without a protective social fabric. So if you have mates, if you have an environment of brotherly love where you can talk about these things, right? If you can have camaraderie, right? If you can have fraternity, that helps to process difficult things and reduces the chances of getting PTSD. So the author says as a non-golden Israeli can't shake some of his abrasive tendencies as a neurologist who's been indoctrinated to treat with pharmacology and as a neuroscientist who tries to reduce many things to molecules I now appreciate a simpler and more elegant way to enhance our innate capabilities to emotionally forget, to socialize, to engage life with humor, and to try to live a life littered with the palliative glow of love. So the case for forgetting. So just as too vivid a memory can sow the seeds of PTSD, communities that overcommemorate past traumas experience the syndrome's crippling social equivalent. So there are people who are particularly obsessed with the past, uh, such as Jews. Uh, The English also have a very strong sense of history. The word amnesty comes from the same root as amnesia, right? It's a legalized form of forgetting to help people move on from civil war. So in Scotland, they enacted law in 1560 after years of sectarian civil conflict. The Treaty of Edinburgh stated, All things done here against the law shall be discharged, and a law of oblivion shall be established. Treaty of Westphalia, 1648, after the vicious 30-year war in Germany between the Protestants and the Catholics, insisted that to ensure the peace, memory of particular atrocities shall be buried in eternal oblivion. Then after the death of Franco in Spain... Right, Spanish law allowed immunity from prosecution in cases of mental illness. So this third way of framing the conflict was popular during the transition with its pact of forgetting and its amnesiac amnesty. The whole of Spain lost its head, the newspaper said. We must take into account the collective insanity. So this uh, scientist says it takes a society about a decade to achieve enough distance from a trauma to appraise it properly to bring to it the kind of humility and forgiveness required for such reconciliation. So there's an Irish activist talks about the damaging Northern Irish obsession with the commemoration of the ancient. We should erect a statue to amnesia and forget where we put it. Then Hitler's bunker in Berlin is now buried under an anonymous parking lot. Then we have this psychiatrist who worked with contending ethnic, religious, and national groups, Arabs and Israelis, Serbs and Bosniaks, wrote a book, Bloodlines, From Ethnic Pride to Ethnic Terrorism. He says that many people single out a chosen trauma, an identity-informing ancestral calamity whose memory mixes history, actual history, with passionate feeling and fantasized grievance and hope. So having some sense of history, having some sense of grievance, all right, probably at a level of about 2 out of 10, 3 out of 10, 
right? That will probably serve you because it gives you a sense of identity, a sense of purpose. It lets you know who your in-group is, provides you with a clarity and some energy. But if you walk around with a sense of grievance uh, at about a 5 out of 10, right, that's probably not going to help you, right? 6 out of 10, a 10 out of 10, that's not going to help you. So communities that choose such intense trauma lock themselves into ceaseless conflicts. Each generation is called upon by its elders to never forget. So this scientist says Israel's in danger of burdening itself with the social equivalent of PTSD. So one Holocaust survivor says redemption is closely linked to the flow of time. We speak of the virtues of memory, but forgetfulness is its own virtue. So remembering the Holocaust becomes can become a cult that imposes on children a rigid, conflict-generating vision of history. A remembered massacre may serve as a deterrent. It may serve as a form of in-group identity. It also serves as a model for creating the next massacre. So in certain situations, you and I, we'd be the concentration camp guards. In other situations, you and I, we would be the concentration camp inmates. Perhaps we should not impose the contents of our minds on our grandchildren. To one Palestinian poet called upon his people not to forget, but to forget about the Nakba when the Zionists took over the land that is now the Jewish state of Israel. So this poet says they should move on, focus instead on defeating the modern Zionist movement, the apartheid that governs the lives of everyone living between the Mediterranean and the Jordan, a land de facto ruled by one power, the Jewish state. So how can the symbols of chosen traumas be made dormant so that they no longer inflame? How can group members adaptively mourn so that their losses no longer give rise to anger, humiliation, and a desire for a revenge? How can a preoccupation with minor differences between people become playful? Guys, how can we start playing about the minor differences between us and other people? How can major differences be accepted without being contaminated with racism? Mark Twain said the American Civil War could in great measure be blamed on the novels of Sir Walter Scott, bloated as they are with the silliness and emptiness, the sham grandeurs, the sham gourds, the sham chivalries of a brainless and worthless long-vanished society. So if drama and theater and novels can lead societies to war, perhaps more authentic drama and theater could be harnessed for peace. So you often hear about the virtues of remembering, but uh, perhaps we don't hear enough about the virtues of forgetting. Many cognitive abilities are not critical for our being. Our core personality, our ability to socialize with family and friends, our ability to laugh and love and to be moved by beauty. So forgetfulness is the permission to let the specifics become hidden, to become buried under the inevitable accumulation of new memories and events created by the ceaseless dynamism, flourishing, and churn of the world. Every act has consequences that change the world in some way, no matter how modest, and those actions will go on changing the world for millennia after we are gone. But to remember the details of every single action is to invite madness, it is to paralyze our brains and our communities with memory. Okay, I like that. 
on the on the virtues of forgetting. Maybe I was a countercultural parent very much that way um, because I had strong opinions and I didn't hesitate to express them. Now, what I didn't do is, you know, uh, well, I was lucky in that my kids are really sensible and really based and grounded and they're great. Uh, I don't know what I would have done if I'd had a child who kind of went off the deep end or whatever. I, I don't know. That's a real problem. You know, Charles Murray says it's one thing to draw a line. That's relatively easy. But when they cross the line to know what to do when people cross the line, that's hard. Yeah, I think that the, the, the new parenting mantra is that you should show your children unconditional love and showing somebody unconditional love goes so far as to not even tell them what conditions you would appreciate, you know, what you might want them to do with their lives and what you think are the strategies for success. So there seems to be this unruttered finding your identity, finding, you know, experimentation that's happening right now where parents won't even say, look, you know, I think if you did something differently, um, but I know my parents would have been thrilled if I had married my first boyfriend, I would have been absolutely miserable with him. So, uh, you know, but they yeah, were sure. I mean, to do that, right? Well, this unconditional love thing is very tricky, right? That's, that's just one of these protean phrases because it can mean a lot of different things. I mean, on some level, we... Okay, guys, we must never forget, right? We just heard about the virtues of forgetting, but then I read another article in the New York Review of Books, which is about the virtues of remembering, right? The long shadow of German colonialism. The people of once of what was once German-occupied Africa are demanding reparations for the colonial violence that shapes the region to this day. Did you know that, that Russia, that uh, Africa used to be a paradise on Earth? It was like Wakanda. They had the internet and space travel. They had all these amazing things. But then the evil Europeans came along and they destroyed Wakanda. So almost two years ago, Germany's foreign minister held a press conference in Berlin to announce that uh, German and Namibian negotiators had approved a reconciliation agreement over atrocities committed by Germans during the colonial period. And the German foreign minister says, we will ask Namibia and the descendants of the victims for forgiveness. And then everybody lived happily ever after, right? There wasn't tr an attempt to try to take advantage, right? There wasn't a, an attempt to try to gain the upper hand. There wasn't an attempt to try to torture the Germans. So in general, in the world, right, the strong take what they want and the weak endure what they must. And so when, when you go around apologizing like Germany did here, how do you think it worked out? So Germany's actions in Namibia stand out for their brutality. They killed tens of thousands of Herero and thousands of Nama people in a campaign of extermination, widely acknowledged as the first genocide of the 20th century. And do you know why they did this? Because they could. Do you know why the Nazis slaughtered Jews? Because they could. Do you know why Stalin committed his genocides? Because he could. And all these groups did these genocides in the pursuit of their own interests. So apparently in the world, different groups have different interests and groups who have power tend to take what they want and groups who are weak tend to endure what they must. So I would much rather not be weak. I would much rather have power. Thank you for coming on. If Thank you. the presidential frontrunner on the Republican side is indicted for a non-crime, tomorrow or soon, what will it mean for this country? Well, there's two things that a republic needs to survive. And one is you, 
you have to have a judicial system that's not weaponized. You can't criminalize politics. We're doing both. And what's ironic is what we're going to see tomorrow is something that was de rigueur. Unfortunately, it's been happening all the time. I can remember when Bill Clinton was facing Monica Lewinsky's testimony and Vernon Jordan tried to pressure her to take a job for 80000 something dollars for Revlon, so she either wouldn't testify against him, or if she did, she would give favorable testimony. And Donald Trump was impeached, Tucker, the first time on the allegation that he used foreign policy as a mechanism to go after a patent or to help him in the upcoming election. But Barack Obama in Seoul, South Korea, just said in a hot mic that he told the Russian president that he was willing to dismantle uh, missile defense, which have been very handy right now in, in the Ukraine war, uh, if Vladimir Putin would give him space while he was up for re-election. And that, that was about as quid pro quo as you could get. And so we look at all, and we have a president right now who who's probably could face Donald Trump, and we have very asymmetrical treatment about the way the Mar-a-Lago raid was conducted versus the Biden raid. And it just continues that the American people are watching this and they're saying, these people don't even try to hide it. They're so asymmetrical. They're, uh, they're not applying the, uh, the law weak, uh, equally. What are they afraid of? And I think they're afraid of that the people, the majority of the people, are not going to vote for them. And they have the institutional support. They own uh, Hollywood entertainment, the corporate boardroom, academia, K through 12. But even with all that power, institutional power, they're still paranoid of what the people feel and what the people would do. So they have this weaponized criminal justice system and this criminalizing of politics. And I don't know how long it can continue and you can still have a republic because the cynicism is, in, is at pandemic proportions. Yes. The cynicism, I think that's so nicely put. You hear people who kind of believed in the system through dismissing it. Okay, thank you, Victor Davis Hanson. Richard Hananya has Twitter thread here. Apparently, Amazon customers give white package delivery men higher ratings than non-whites. Look, the only explanation here is racist customers who sit there peeking out their windows, just seething with rage the moment they see a black man bring something to their porch. That's the only possible explanation. Uber is being sued on the same grounds, right? Apparently, white Uber drivers get higher ratings than non-white. Whenever you try to do anything by merit, it only highlights how much racism there still is in the world. Unionize, pay everyone the same. All customers, all businesses have shown they can't be trusted to appreciate black magic. Uber has been sued for firing minority drivers based on how they were rated by customers. Racial bias alleged by delivery contractors is subtle, guys, and it's difficult to detect. Luckily, we have academics who specialize in things like community psychology. Right, since there's no evidence of actual bias in the reviews, all right, these people act like uh, they know what they're talking about. They fill the pages of their writings with unverified random anecdotes about how scary white neighborhoods are. If you wonder why people hate the news media, here it is. All right, uh, back to Germany and its attempt to deliver reparations to Namibia. But uh, apparently, even after 
Germany said they would give Namibia $1.2 billion in aid for reconstruction and development over the next 30 years. How do you think that went down? In the week that followed, any goodwill resulting from the billion dollars crumbled. The main groups representing the descendants of the victims argued that they'd been unfairly left out of the negotiations because of Germany's refusal to include anyone outside of the Namibian government. So Germany has refused to hold a direct talks with the various tribes here in Namibia. At the same time, since 1952, Germany has paid more than $90 billion in compensation to the victims of the Holocaust. Right? In part through an agreement negotiated with the Claims Conference, uh, NGO representing Jews. So why are the Germans willing to negotiate with the Claims Conference, but not with these African tribes? Well, because the Claims Conference is filled with white Europeans, and these tribes are black Africans. That's the only explanation. So we have various uh, academics who have now begun specializing in Germany's colonial crimes. So apparently the German authorities were trying to create a utopian racial state in the colony. All right. Some people have this crazy idea that if you can create an in-group community filled with people who are a great deal similar to each other, that uh, you'll have more peace and you'll have more community feeling and you'll have higher levels of social trust. That's, that's shocking. Who thought? Who thought? So, anyway, in the spring of 2020, a bizarre conflict erupted over the decision by an arts festival in Western Germany to invite the Cameroonian academic Achille Mbembe to give a talk. After local politician quoted passages from Mbembe's work out of context, passages that drew parallels between the Holocaust and South African apartheid and criticized Israel's actions in Palestine, Germany's federal commissioner on anti-Semitism said that such comparisons between the Holocaust and other historical events represent a recognizable anti-Semitic pattern and called for Ikile Mbembe to be disinvited. Yes, the Holocaust is absolutely unique. Right? Jews win the victimhood Olympics. Like, how dare anyone you know, try to compare the, their suffering to, to Jewish suffering? That's, that's illegal. Can't do that. So this Cameroonian academic was disinvited. So, uh, outraged many on the left who believe that Memembe and others should be allowed to suggest links between colonial crimes and the Holocaust. So the leaders of more than 30 cultural institutions... You know when you're allowed to suggest links between things and the Holocaust, when it supports a left-wing agenda, when it supports a non-left-wing agenda, then you're not allowed to compare anything to the Holocaust. Those are the rules. right? The people with power... Right, the left dominate almost all our institutions, and they set the rules. But uh, 30 left-wing German cultural institutions have signed a letter arguing that Germany's historic responsibility should not lead to a blanket moral or political delegitimization of other historical experiences of violence and oppression. We need to be more sensitive to other people's lived experience. 
So journalists and historians have been arguing about this in the German media ever since. The debate is reminiscent of the historical stride, right? The historian's dispute of the 1980s. I did half a dozen videos on that. It erupted after the historian Ernst Nauter argued that Germany did not bear an exceptional burden of guilt for the Holocaust since mass killing had occurred before, particularly in the Soviet Union, was not historically unique. So with every event, every two events, you can find ways that they are similar and ways that they are different, right? So someone gets killed in downtown Los Angeles tonight, all right? That is a unique event in history, right? You can find ways that it is unparalleled by any other event in history. You can find ways that the Holocaust was unique and different from every other genocide, and you can find ways that it was similar to other genocides. You can find ways that this Namibian genocide was unique, and you can find ways that the Namibian genocide was like other genocides. There's no objective standard for you know, handing out gold medals for the, for the greatest Holocaust, the greatest genocides. Right. Numerous scholars disagreed with Ernst Nauter. Jürgen Habermas, man of the left, argued that such comparisons downplayed German responsibility and that the Holocaust should be seen as a singular historical event. Well, there are ways that the Holocaust was indeed a singular historical event. There are ways that uh, the Namibian genocide was a singular historical event. But the Jürgen Habermas views has become the cornerstone of the German approach to memory culture, Right, it's the left that dictates what you're allowed to do. Now, this new dispute is known as the Historica Strait II. And so you've got all these scholars probing the connections between the Germans in Namibia and the Third Reich. And so with the blessings of the left, you've got these scholars arguing for a comparative view. Right, so they're not saying that the genocide of these African tribes was a rehearsal for the Holocaust or that the two are equivalent in scale or motivation, right? Never say that uh, anything is equivalent in scale or motivation to the Holocaust, right? It's Holocaust is unparalleled, cannot be, cannot be compared to anything unless it's to promote a left-wing view. So these scholars argue that by examining parallels between them, one can arrive at a more accurate view of the forces driving German and global history. For German history, the genocide in Africa is meaningful in two ways. On the one hand, it shows the existence of genocidal fantasies of violence in the German military and German administration as early as the start of the 20th century. And on the other, popularized this violence, thereby contributing to its legitimization. Yes, because without the nasty, brutish, genocidal Europeans, Africans just lived in peace and harmony. They had created this Wakanda utopia. You never found African tribes going to war with each other never found Africans committing genocide against each other. They just lived in harmony with each other. They lived in harmony with nature. They lived in harmony with Mother Earth. They lived in harmony with the sun, moon, and stars. They lived in harmony with the skies and the seas and the oceans and the trees and the plants and the animals. Everybody just lived in harmony until the evil Europeans came along. Since when have Africans ever hurt each other? Right? That would, uh, that would never happen. It was only the very nasty, brutal Europeans who introduced this whole concept of uh, genocide. Otherwise, it was just absolutely unknown in Wakanda. Okay. The colonial experiences in Africa represent a cultural reservoir of cultural practices from which those serving the National Socialists could avail themselves. Yes. 
without these experiences in Africa, it never would have occurred to anyone to commit genocide, right? Never before has there been such a substantial and intense conflict of interest in a particular location so that it became a zero-sum conflict wherein both groups felt like they had to kill the enemy to try to preserve that which they loved. And so therefore, due to intense conflicts of interest, you had mass killing. But it would never have occurred without this uh, European colonial German legitimization and popularization of violence. In the 1920s and 30s, German Southwest Africa was romanticized in public memorials, school curricula, films, and books, including a popular genre known as colonial literature. Yes, and when the, the Israelites went into Canaan and created a Jewish state, uh, that too has been romanticized when Europeans moved to North America and wiped out the Indians. That too has been romanticized. Any strong in-group develops romantic feelings and stories and songs and histories about the past. Right? That's what we do. If you love your spouse, you have an exaggerated sense of their virtues and you tend to minimize their flaws. Right? These are adaptive mechanisms. So was it these expansionary German policies in Africa that led to the occupation of Eastern Europe during the Third Reich? Well, the reason that one group often occupies land of another group is because they want to. They see some advantages in doing so, right? They are looking out for their own group and they don't tend to care as much about our groups. And you don't need you know, fancy academic theories to understand why that happens. Anthropologists who became leading proponents of race biology in Nazi Germany were influenced by research carried out in German colonies in Africa. Yeah, the Nazis never would have been unkind to anyone if it wasn't for, for the German experience in what is now Namibia. Some of the regulations imposed during the Nazi occupation of Poland, such as a ban on Poles riding bicycles and entering movie theaters, a requirement for all Poles to greet passing Germans, echoed policies previously instituted in Southwest Africa. Yeah, so this was the very first time that one conquering people laid down restrictions on a native population. I mean, when, when uh, the eucalyptus and other invasive species are introduced into a new location, they frequently outcompete the natives. They frequently suck up valuable resources such as water. They sometimes emit compounds that make it impossible for other forms of life to exist, and they outcompete the native vegetation. Right? That's why there's this whole category of invasive species. Right? You don't generally find in nature multiple subspecies living together in peace and harmony and love. Right? You get multiple types of pond scum in the same pond, and they don't live together in peace and love. Right? They tend to compete with each other and drive each other out. Right? So very rarely, if at all, do you find two or more subspecies in the same location.
So the biological interpretation of world history, the conviction that a people needs to secure space to survive, is one of the fundamental parallels between colonialism and Nazi expansion policy in Eastern Europe. Yes, this was the very first time in all of history that one people thought that they needed more space. Right, this had never occurred before. You never before had two groups competing for natural resources. Right? You never before had you know, two groups with different desires, different aims, different priorities, and competing for natural resources. Right? This happens all the time. Resources are limited. Human desires are infinite. Different groups have different interests. When they are together in the same space, it leads to conflict. So Germany's general plan called for much of Hitler's general plan called for much of Central and Eastern Europe, as well as the Soviet Union, to be emptied of its inhabitants, resettled by German farmers. Well, this has gone on throughout history. This goes on among uh, apes and baboons, right? They clear out competitors and they take over. Special effort was made to recruit settlers who had previously lived in African colonies. 1941, Hitler said about Ukraine, the Russian territory is our India. Like the English rule India with a handful of people, we will rule our colonial territory. So Hitler admired the white Australia policy. Hitler admired the ruthlessness of American expansion and the way that Americans just wiped out any competitors. And he admired the ruthlessness of English exploitation of India. So in 2021, had this American scholar Michael Rothberg saying that a ban on any comparison and contextualization leads to the Shoah being excised from history. So it's cool to compare the Shoah to other things as long as it promotes a left-wing agenda. Such a ban would undermine attempts to learn from history. If a singular event can occur only once, then there's no need to worry about it happening again. Well, you can see that which is singular about an event, and then you can see how it's connected and comparable to other events, right? These things don't cancel each other out. And the chat has gone silent. Right? I'm delivering such high IQ content that people are just absolutely mesmerized right now. Historian Saul Friedlander says, it's not a question of belief as to whether the Holocaust should be seen as singular or not. It is differentiated not only in individual aspects from other historical crimes, but on a fundamental level. Nazi anti-Semitism didn't just aim to eradicate the Jews as individuals, first through expulsion, then through extermination, but also by erasing any trace of the Jew. Yeah, that's never happened before in human history. When have, in human history prior to the Holocaust have people ever tried to wipe out their enemy? I just can't even remember such an occasion. Just uh, this had to be completely brand spanking new. Right, this is from the New York Review of Books, The Long Shadow of German Colonialism. Sometimes this historic strike two debate has invoked straw man arguments, with some commentators falsely claiming the post-colonial scholars want to equate the Holocaust with colonial crimes. Guys, remember, you've got you to have everything added up you know, precisely and remember that Jewish suffering is greater and more important than all other suffering. It's become a proxy for a battle over the adoption of progressive American views about racial justice. So journalist Thomas Schmidt accuses some of these scholars of being part of a trendy American imported attempt to position the Holocaust behind colonialism, which fits with the contemporary culture of general suspicion 
against the white man and the white woman. So this new historical strike has emerged out of a confluence of factors, the debate over reparations, the pushback against the Humboldt Forum, the rise of Germany, the rise in Germany of a globalized sense of history. Is there anything more invigorating for a people than developing a globalized sense of history and letting go of any sense that they are special? So we have now debates about slavery in the U.S., colonialism in the U.K., and they are transposed onto local experiences. And we have a debate about German identity. Is there anything more invigorating, more strengthening for identity than to recognize all the horrible things that your people have done in the past? How to reconcile Germany's post-war self-image, largely centered on atonement and guilt for the Holocaust, with its modern status as a country defined by immigration? I didn't realize that Germany's post-war self-image was largely centered on atonement and guilt for the Holocaust. I thought that uh, Germany's post-World War II image was largely centered on how hard the Germans worked, how effectively they worked, how well they organized, uh, what a high degree of productivity and excellence they have achieved, or the great things that post-World War II Germany has achieved. I would have thought that would be the basis for, for German identity. So the proportion of German residents who are immigrants or who have immigrant parents has risen from 19% to 27%. What a blessing. Many of these new arrivals come from countries that were previously colonized by European powers. Do you know why one people colonizes other people? Because they can. Because it seems exciting and interesting. Because they want things that other people seem to have. The best way not to get colonized is to be really, really strong. Activists have pushed for German identity to be broadened to accommodate immigrants from Africa and the Middle East. And they argue that their greatest historical trauma is colonialism, not World War II. Can you think of anything greater for German identity than developing a strong sense of African identity, and a strong sense of Middle Eastern identity, developing their internal Syrian and Afghan and Namibian identity? I think that would just be amazing for German identity. We do give our children unconditional love. But on the other hand, all we all we need to do is say, look, there is better and there is worse. And there are many ways to live a life, you know, too narrow a, a view, too tight a notion of what a worthwhile life is, is no good either. You have to be open to your children, you know, taking many different paths, as long as they're constructive paths. Um, that, that's all. I mean, I have relatives, you know, I have a lot of relatives in the medical field uh, and one senior person who essentially communicated to his kids, there's only one worthwhile thing to do, and that's to be a doctor. Well, you know, I was puzzled by this. It's like saying, well, we all have to be taking in each other's laundry, you know? Why are we keeping each, uh, each other alive for? What, I mean, just for the hell of it? Uh, <laughs> no, there has to be other things in life that we keep people alive for. Health is in service of other goals, uh, other aspirations. So, you know, when your child or children get older, you will realize that they are not a version of you, that they have different interests, different orientations. Uh, my youngest daughter is very interested in the dramatic art. She was headed to being a, a director, a successful one in New York when COVID hit. You know, this is something that never attracted me, uh, that I was never the slightest bit interested in. And so you see your children manifest interests that you don't have. And that's part of the fascination of being a parent. Yeah. You know, of how did that happen? Um, that sort of thing.
I'm, I'm curious because a lot of women in your station are either childless or have one or two children. Why did you have three children? Did you intend to have three children? Tell me a little bit about how you planned your life around, around children and family because now women are you know freezing their eggs. They're, um, most women who end up childless didn't intend to. They just didn't find a partner in time. There's right. this you know huge conversation in feminist circles about what to do. And it's just, it's very confusing. And then I'm just curious what your advice would be. Well, I think this is very, very difficult. Um, I do feel bad for people who have trouble finding partners. I think this is a whole nother topic of what, why are there so many impediments to people getting together? Uh, and, you know, I could talk for a while about that. Um, and, and it's sad, but I, you know, I would have probably had more. I would have had four. I got a very late start. My first child was born when I was 37. Uh, yeah. I was very, very lucky in being able to have two children in my forties, which many people cannot do. And that was just, you know, a stroke of luck that I was fertile for longer than the average woman. So I was very grateful for that. Uh, if I had gotten an earlier start, I probably would have had maybe four kids. Um, my sister-in-law has four kids. Uh, my, my husband's family, they have a lot of kids. Um, I think, because even though I, I was a very career-oriented woman, I will confess that uh, more than most, I really was, I had a very strong traditionalist streak. Maybe it's because I'm fundamentally conservative in the way I look at life. Uh, maybe it's because I was raised in a pretty devout Jewish family, although there are lots of people raised in devout Jewish families who go completely off the deep end uh, in the opposite direction, of course. So that's not very causally uh, cogent. Um, but I just never doubted that it was really important as a woman, as a person, to have children, that that was just so completely central to what it meant to be human. I just cannot imagine being a childless woman. It strikes me as just this horrible misfortune. It is is such a vital, important part of the human experience. And I remember when each of my children was born, the, the pure elation of it, of having that newborn child, of hearing the first cry of your child, of going into the nursery and picking up your child in the quiet of the night. It, there's nothing like it. it. I'm getting kind of emotional about it, but I can't imagine missing that. Wow. New side of uh, Amy Wax. That's it. Take care. Bye-bye. Ah, are you with me tonight, Keeve? Are you with me tonight, Keeve? Are you with me tonight, Keeve?